As many of us are confined all around the world, we wanted to provide you with a daily podcast in partnership with Radio Halara, emitting from Palestine. Our ambition for it is not to add to the saturation of information about the pandemic we are currently experiencing, but rather to propose a 15-minute extension of our political imaginaries every day. The concept is very simple. Every day we ask one person the same question. What is for you a moment of true decolonization? The answer can be a historical moment or something they witnessed, something heroic and grandiose or rather discreet and mundane, a durable blow to the structures of colonialism or a short instant of liberation. While we are recording this podcast in privileged conditions of confinement, we keep in our thoughts the multitude of people around the world who do not share similar conditions or have no choice but to risk being affected by the pandemic because of criminal policies that have to do with neoliberalism, carceralism or colonialism. We thank you for listening and wish you and your loved ones the very best wherever you are. Hello everyone. Today is the 16th episode of A Moment of True Decolonization, our daily podcast uh, on the Phenobalist and Radio Halara uh, during confinement. Um, and our guest is uh, Sabah Hinab, who's an architect, a urban, a urban researcher, and an artist practicing out of Amman and Beirut. Um, and she, she has been working on the reconstruction of the Nahal Bahad Palestinian refugee camp in uh, near Tripoli in Lebanon, uh, along with uh, some friends, uh, Ismail Sheikh Hassan and uh, Lynn Jabri. But we'll talk more about this. And um, through research, design, mapping, model making, and sculpture, Sabah's work explores the suspended state between temporality and permanence and is concerned with variable notions of dwelling and building and their political, spatial, and poetic implications in language and architecture. And I will add that she recently had an exhibition, a monographic exhibition in Berlin that was curated by Omar Berada that we already had uh, in this series. So uh, that's some nice, some nice bridges as well. Uh, hello, hello, Sabah. Hello, Leopold. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time on a Saturday to to do this. No, perfect. No, no, my pleasure. Without further ado, would you tell us about this moment you decided to share with us? Sure. So um, when you first asked me about my moment of true decolonization, uh, honestly, my mind went all over the place and on so many levels. Um, I thought of my immediate context, <clears throat> sorry, which is Amman and Beirut, and I thought of being in Beirut now and it's uprising, but uh, I'm not going to talk about that, uh, and I will use use it as a as a reference point. Um, so ten years ago, um, I came to Lebanon from uh, I came to Lebanon from Amman to work on the reconstruction of Nahr al Barit as an architect which is a project many of us thought had a revolutionary layer to it at that time. Um, in my first days in Beirut and before I go to Tripoli in the north, which is, uh, by the way, 40 minutes away from, from the camp by car, 
I found a, a book uh, titled اختيار النهاية الحزينة or Choosing the Sad Ending by the late Jordanian novelist and political activist Ghalib Halasa who uh, spent most of his life in exile between Egypt, Syria and uh, Lebanon. So Choosing the Sad Ending is a compilation of diaries, articles, commentaries um, Um, uh, on on class struggle in the Palestinian context in in uh, in the 1980s, um, the book is a critique that suggests that um, the PLO chose consciously and willingly the sad ending against the will and the sacrifices of the Palestinians. Uh, and the armed struggle. And um, this was written in in the 80s, so there is a prophecy in a way. Um, the book analyzes and debates the role of the Palestinian elite, uh, the bourgeois and the ruling class uh, manifested in the PLO and the class-slash-liberation struggle within uh, this context. Um, so there is something in the book and um, in the title in particular that is really timeless, which is you know, the need to dismantle the structure of authority and domination within the Palestinian context, pre and post Oslo, of course, and um, and the need to critique and challenge the narratives produced culturally and politically, but most importantly, to constantly think of the margins and the centers. So I realized recently that I cannot really separate this incident or this book from Nahr al-Barid, although they may seem not directly connected. And um, to go back to Nahr al-Barid, in uh, 2007, uh, the Lebanese army demolished um, Nahr al-Barid camp, a Palestinian refugee camp in the north of Lebanon, after an armed conflict with Fath al-Islam, a predominantly foreign Islamist fundamentalist group that had planted itself in the camp just six months earlier. Um, on account of the demolition of the camp, 33,000 refugees were displaced to adjacent areas and to Badawi camp, uh, which is the closest uh, camp to, uh, to Nahr al-Barid. Um, the battles continued a little over three months and the destruction happened after the battles concluded, which is a very important point. And this destruction uh, was justified with no actual justification by the logic of the exception uh, of the extraterritoriality. So it was the exclusion from the law that allowed for a total and sudden destruction of the camp, especially that it was promoted as a war on terrorism. Um, and the bulldozed camp was transformed into a military site um, um, that no one could enter unless you unless you have a permit from the army intelligence. So, to to think about this this project is an invitation to think um, about post-war reconstruction in general, as this kind I mean post-war reconstruction projects or post-conflict uh, reconstruction projects, they they normally depart from reconstruction as a national project of reconciliation. Uh, sometimes to interpret a future or reinterpreting a heritage and a national identity. But in the case of Nahr al-Barid, we are reconstructing an extension of a colonial space from one hand and an extraterritorial space on the other. So, and this brings us actually to one of the most crucial questions here. Um, can, can the camp uh, redeem or liberate itself 
from both accumulative and current political burdens or with the reconstruction as a process be a continuation or a manifestation of the violence that caused the destruction in the first place. Um, during the battles, uh, the, the Lebanese officials had begun to make plans for, the reconstru for, for uh, reconstructing Nahr al-Barid with keywords such as sovereignty and security dominating, dominating the discussion. And actually, a consultant was hired, Khatibu um, Alami, which is a, a really big firm in Beirut, who immediately entered into discussions with the military on planning specifications and proposed a really random master plan. And the least uh, we can say about their proposal that it's a vision of a of a model camp or of a desired camp by the authorities. At the same time, um, in Badawi camp, where most of Nahr al-Barid residents had taken refuge, uh, a spontaneous grassroots initiative emerged, formulating a counter plan and mobilized by a general conviction that Nahr al-Bari's destruction and the government's uh, plans of reconstruction were politically motivated. It was really obvious. Um, and the initiative was named Nahr al-Bari Reconstruction Commission for Civil Action and Studies, or NBRC. Um, and it was a group that attracted uh, members from the local community and practitioners from and outside the camp. Um, now, with with no sorts of document, no sort of documentation of its um, built environment, um, the only way to restore the spatial history of the camp was to reconstruct it from residents' memory, uh, and the whole camp uh, with NBRC were mobilized for for this reason. So these studies. Um, I mean, uh, the spatial studies uh, of the camp imposed the community as the main partner in the reconstruction process, as they were the only producer and owner of that knowledge. Uh, and in partnership with UNRWA, NBRC managed to gear the reconstruction process towards achieving a number of principles discussed and emerged from several community meetings, such as uh, participatory planning, uh, preserving the fabric, uh, the previous fabric of the camp, uh, to name a few. So, uh, maps of spatial organizations were produced, um, urban fabric plans, individual households plans, and typology analysis. Um, I mean, all kinds of drawings were created and validated in several community meetings which is uh, in itself uh, a process of datification that transformed the invisibility and the abstract body of the refugee into a grand gesture of reclaiming space. Uh, despite this grand gesture, I think we should be able today to be critical of the project if we think it's necessary and to recognize, its, uh, to recognize the fallouts. And I think my moment of decolonization was in this realization. Um, many moments in, in this extended exile and refuge had metamorphosed and still does. <laughs> Sorry. From, uh, from being moments of uh, liberation to ones of failure and vice versa in a constant cycle of elimination and resurrection. So, for example, the moment of the promise of liberation, which was introduced by the Palestinian armed struggle in the late 60s, 
had transformed later into a moment of failure as it was abused over the years to justify excessive discrimination and isolation of the Palestinians by the host countries, uh, which is the same rationale that justified the destruction of the camp. Um, however, a notion of liberation resurrected from the same from this same moment of failure. This absence of documentation of the camp or the invisibility from the system made the reclamation of space possible. So the process of mental mapping and recollecting of space commanded the right to the space and therefore the return to the camp. And I must say there was a general conviction that the return to the camp is a prerequisite to the return to Palestine. And this is not really an idea I'm imposing, but more of a collective moment that is poetic, but, uh, but extremely political as well. Uh, at the same time, this moment had revealed um, the power structure and authority within the camp itself. So, um, the idea of reconstructing the destroyed camp held a revolutionary potential in the construction of spatiality itself, and with it, the possibility to rethink building in temporariness. Um, slowly but surely, the new, the promise of the new, or the new of the demolition, brought a new constellation of power involving the state and the army uh, and imposing their vision of security through planning despite the involvement of the community. So another crucial question uh, in this process is uh, regarding the possibility of imagining a future in such context and through architecture in the nonlinear time or in the permanent temporariness. And, and imagining a future actively where architecture could shift from from the position of need to the position of desire and for me an architect working on the reconstruction the question transformed from how to rebuild a camp into how to dwell and even die in a state of suspension and um I have to say uh, the term permanent temporariness uh, has been used um, and is used by Sandy Hilal and Alessandro Petty to indicate, to indicate the transformation of the physical uh, temporariness of the camp into a concrete urban densification conceptually and theoretically. Uh, but I use the term in reference to deterritorialization beyond the outside, uh, beyond and outside the physicality of the camp. In, in order to tackle the notion of dwelling in the temporaneous uh, in any inhabited space. Um, for example, Amman, uh, my city, is a subtle manifestation of this, this non-linear time, which is also part of the Palestinian narrative that is strongly overlooked. Uh, its permanent temporaneous is beyond the walls of the camp, for sure. And on, on, on the other end, there's Nahr al-Barid, a camp reconstructed with a master plan and infrastructure on uh, an expropriated land by the government, which is an extreme case of this mutated state of temporariness. Between the two, there is a whole spectrum of elusivity and typologies of what permanent temporariness is, 
And uh, this is another decolonizing moment for me, uh, which is to realize uh, the sub-architectural histories uh, in this non-linear time that could be written and actually can hijack uh, the main architectural history or timeline written by the North and by authority. And um, I would like to end with, uh, with this uh, thought. Thank you so much, Sabah. Uh, I think it was fascinating for everyone who had been following the reconstruction of Nahal Bahad, uh, as well as for people who were not necessarily familiar with it yet, and uh, they, can, they can go deeper into it. Take, uh, take good care in Beirut and uh, talk again very soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. That's all for today. Find us tomorrow again for a new episode as part of this daily podcast series. And if you're a subscriber to The Phenomenalist, remember that you have access to every single article we published in the past in their online version on our website. Thank you very much and take care.